0: Now let's get into this week's show. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticamp. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. Here we cover a variety of topics that are going to help you be more confident and successful in the field. While you're hunting deer, thanks so much for tuning in with me this week, guys. I've I've been on a little bit of a hiatus. It's been it's been a crazy Christmas New Year season, and uh, things have really taken off with doing some consulting this time of year. And so I've been doing a ton of traveling, which makes it difficult not only for me to just sit down and record a podcast, but sit down and put the time that it takes into it to actually schedule with you know high quality guests. And so, I haven't been pumping out a lot of material here lately. I'm going to get that back on track here pretty quick. Uh, I had Ethan Eskew on, though, a couple weeks ago. If you didn't listen to that episode, you need to go back and listen to it. It was fantastic, and I'm looking forward to putting into practice a lot of what he talked about in that episode. Got a good one for you today. This is actually a rerun episode, but not a rerun from How to Hunt Deer. This is a rerun from the Wisconsin Sportsman podcast. Uh, when I had a chance to catch up with Mr. Sam Billhorn of Whitetail Partners. Now, you've probably heard of Sam. Sam is the owner, founder of Whitetail Partners. I am actually part of the Whitetail Partners team. We're a team of Habitat and Whitetail Deer Hunting Property Consultants. A couple guys on the team now have their real estate license. And so, you know, things are really cranking here at Whitetail Partners. But I wanted to rerun this episode that I originally aired on the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast last year. Because Sam and I had a chance to just catch up and talk about, does your property need a tune-up? Like the place that you hunt, you know, is, is it doing what you need it to do? One of the most consistent things across the board that I think you see in the whitetail hunting space is that those guys who kill big deer consistently have access to quality ground. Now that might be on public land where they've got some good quality public around, or they know where good quality public is, and so they they travel there uh, year after year, kind of like I'm still doing to Wisconsin. Uh, or they own a piece of ground or lease a piece of ground that they were able to control and make it what they wanted. So in this episode, we're asking, hey, does your place need a tune-up? Does that mean uh, you need to go find some new public because the public that you're hunting is just not getting you where you want to be as far as your goals go? Does your owned property or leased property need a tune-up? And what can you be doing this time of year to make that property what you want it to be? And sort of underneath all that conversation, how do you even step back and evaluate, right? Because there's a lot more that goes into whether or not this was a good hunting season than, you know, whether or not you killed a giant buck. Like there are a lot other a lot of other factors in there in there that you need to take into account. So that's what we get into in this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Sam, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, happy to be here, Josh. Uh, thanks again for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming back on. Your voice sounds a little bit better than when I talked to you last
1: week. Yeah, I've been a little raspy recovering from having been sick here the past week, so forgive me of that. Yeah,
0: well, if you, if you cough a few times, that's all right. We'll, uh, we'll make our way around it. But, hey, Sam, how's your, uh, how's your season been so far?
1: I've had, a, I've had a really great year. It's been, you know, just a refocus of, for me to just enjoy being outside. And, um, uh, I've done a, most of my hunting has been with others, uh, especially with my son. Um, I can I've lost track of how many times we've been out hunting and it's just, uh, it's just been a joy to watch him kind of, uh, you know, take ownership of things and love doing it. Um, he killed a deer this fall too, uh, earlier in archery season. Um, he, uh, we, we had some good action during rifle season here recently and, uh, had a couple, couple opportunities we weren't able to capitalize on, but just really been enjoying being out. And then for myself, um, we, I've, I've really, uh, made a point of hunting a lot of different areas across the farm and seeing what's going on. You know, I have a a couple bucks I'm still interested in, but I know that, uh, just the way that they are operating that it's, it's going to be a tough, tough one for me here, perhaps late season. I'd still close, but I've kind of known that all along you know we have a i think it's seven or eight three year olds now that are um, doing doing really well and we've been able to uh, have that age class be strong this year but the couple four year olds uh, we had um, uh, one is seemed to have disappeared so maybe uh, uh, fell on another property and the other one uh, fell to a, a neighboring bow hunter who I know really well and uh, happy for him and how that uh, that went down too so been a good year and and enjoyed so much of it um and but it's, it's quickly turning to uh to habitat season here now for us
0: yeah so when it comes to uh hunting in the late season I mean is this is is this a time where you typically find yourself still with a buck tag in your pocket or is this a time that you're not normally getting after them very hard
1: you know and it's funny you mention that because uh I'm not normally hunting this late into the year with still with a buck tag and that's that has been, um, it, it's been fun to go out there with a muzzle loader. I mean, the past two years haven't had that. And uh, to enjoy that, all these different seasons we have uh, in our state. Um, still might get out with a bow here yet, like I said, kind of just uh, watching from afar with the food plots and the cameras now and having all my cameras kind of staged that way to target in on, on what's coming to the food plots. Have have had some new bucks show up just even in the last few days and uh, some good ones at that. So yeah, I may not be done yet. We'll, we'll see how things go.
0: Yeah. When you, when you get into the late season, so your farm is, have you said 40 acres? Is that right?
1: Well, we, we own 40 acres. Um, And then you've got a larger property. Yeah. There's, well, the greater farm is 400 acres, but uh, I would say about 80 to a hundred that we have strong control of as far as what we're able to do there and, and where we hunt. So I, I hunt effectively about on 80 acres. Gotcha. When it mm-hmm. comes
0: then to the late season, when you say to yourself, "Hey, I've got a couple of good bucks showing up, but I've got a strong crop of three-year-olds." How mm-hmm. much does that play into your thinking when you're like, "I don't necessarily want to bump all these deer onto the neighbors this time of year?"
1: Well, actually, I'm once the firearm seasons are done, I think 99% of hunters are done. Okay. And and, and that's my yeah. Maybe my gut feel, or just what I see, the activity uh, of others die off. Now there's a there's a few. Like I said, I have one neighbor adjacent to me who's a, a good bull hunter, and uh, he he probably will be out. So I am mindful that way. But I'm actually a lot more aggressive because I feel I have nothing to lose, and I'm not worried about pushing a deer. I'm I'm going to take those risks. Uh, I'd say much more than any other time in the season that I will go into an area I haven't been in. Uh, push further back perhaps because trying to catch that, that buck coming to a food source at night. I'm, I'm definitely not doing any uh, morning hunts at this point in time, unless by chance there's a, a kill plot or something I have one daylighting on, but you know, that's, that's my approach. I'm, I'm actually very aggressive uh, in the late season. Uh, I'm not worried about bumping a deer at all.
0: Interesting. Okay. So once that, once that gun season's over, that's kind of your mm-hmm. trigger of like, okay, if, if I bump some three-year-olds off the property that I'm hoping will be sticking around for next year, I'm not going to lose yeah. them all. Yeah. Whereas in a firearm season, you, you bump, you bump seven, you might lose four of them and uh, you don't want to yeah, do that.
1: Firearm, firearm season, we are extremely careful. Yeah. We, we just hunt on the edges and it's mostly with the kids and it's more about the culture and the camaraderie than it is uh, buck hunting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So heading into next year then, I mean, you said it's almost habitat season. Uh, mm-hmm. what are, what are you thinking about or how, where are you rethinking maybe your own plan for your property as you're like, Hey, you know, here's where we are. Here's how the property has performed. How long have you been sort of intensively managing that property?
1: So what I'm always looking forward to at this time of the year is getting out and, um, dissecting the property, you know, so as soon as we're done hunting, uh, and, and that's for our, our whole party, you know, we want to be considerate if, if some people are still at it. But as soon as we're done is getting out there and I want to go over every square inch of the place. Um, you know, on 80 acres, I might, without exaggeration spend a day walking around. Um, okay. And, and what I want to see is, you know, how are the deer using this perhaps especially differently than I expect them to. You know, I um, obviously on a highly managed property, almost every deer movement is predictable for us as far as where we expect them to be and why and all that. And it it starts to ask questions of, you know, why is this bedding area being used so much or why is this bedding area being used so little? Um, or, you know, whatever that case is, is, um, as a property goal is you're never done. You're always looking at it to say, you know, okay, this bedding area, it's starting to thicken or not thicken up, but, you know, it's starting, it's needing some maintenance. Maybe we need to re-hinge cut some trees or we need to go in there and we don't want deer leaking out in this direction. So we're going to close that off. You know, all these little details, I think a lot of it revolves around travel. I want to see how deer are moving throughout the property because that's how I intend to uh, capitalize on those opportunities. And if they're taking some route I don't want them to, I'm going to change it. And those are the type of things where I'm, making notes and mental notes out in the field as to, as to what to do.
0: Yeah. So, and how long have you been managing that property now?
1: Uh, About five years now, coming up on five years. I Mm
0: -hmm. I just wanted to highlight that because what you just said, you know, you're going to walk every inch of that property and you've had it for five years. So you've gone through this process five different times, but you don't Mm -hmm. sit back and say, well, I know the property. I don't need to go check that out. You're still getting out there and confirming what you suspect and believe is true of the property and the improvements that you've made.
1: Absolutely. You know. And that's huge. Uh, hand, hands down and I would say um, one of the things that is most easily overlooked is open field development and food plots and those sort of things because you say and it's not just necessarily the type of crops you have or what what you're putting in there but the structure of that. I'm I'm continuously making tweaks within the fields to segment plots, either with warm season grass or, or corn, uh, or plot screen, um, or, you know, uh, edge feathering. If we've got a adjacent timber edge to, to manipulate that timber some more, um, I'm getting more and more into directing travel through plots, be it with, um, I do like a lot more clover walkways and, uh, even bringing in little strips of grass here and there just throughout the plot to give it a lot you know a lot more structure it's not just you know this open rectangle of food it's it's a maze and pockets and all these different things because i want i want deer to be as comfortable in that plot as they are in my bed, you know bedding areas yeah and that's something
0: you know growing up doing food plots on on hunting clubs and things like that that is not something that we did uh, really much of we would we would occasionally plant um, like if there was a fire break or a small you know an old dim road or an old logging road going out of the of the plot we would plant that at times to kind of make it more predictable where the deer how the deer would travel into the plot but we left everything mm-hmm. as kind of a destination you know what I mean it was just a, a rectangle or a circle or an oval of or even an hourglass if you're trying to get fancy with uh, some bow you know bow setups but It's a destination for food. You know, we're trying to get deer into the plot, and that creates all kinds of problems when you, uh, one, if you would like to hunt it in the morning or hunt that area in the morning because you're blowing everything out of a destination food source. And number two, when you're getting out in the evenings, there's almost no way to get out without spooking some deer because even if there are no deer in the field, they may be 10 yards into the woods and you don't even know they're there.
1: Those are great points. A couple of things that come to mind with that certainly is access and a concealed blind. Um, I, I won't uh, set up a, a hunting plot, whether you call that a destination or a travel plot or a kill plot, whatever you, whatever type of plot that is. I won't create that hunting setup unless I can get in and out of that blind virtually at any time. Now, obviously there's a, always a little bit of noise you can make, getting in and out of a blind. And if you got a deer 10 yards in front of you, it's not perfect. Okay. But I would say if you cannot exit from the rear and take the back door out of that place, um, that setup is somehow it, it is flawed and you have opportunity there to, uh, spook deer off your food, which is one of the number one things to avoid in any sort of hunting plot. Um, back on the travel side of the deer and the predictability of their movement throughout. Uh, like I said, the, getting deer to move through a plot. So you might have a, a two-acre plot, but if a deer enters that field, what is the probability that they're going to come to your bull range, your be it your whatever location that is or range that that is? You know, I want, I want to create opportunities for deer to move throughout a plot so that they will at least pass by that window with a high probability. And what I meant, I said before with clover walkways and different designs and screening, and I want to create the the likelihood that a deer will come within bull range. A simple example of that that somebody could picture would be like a horseshoe. You know, if you have, if you're at the bottom of that U and that's your bull range as you can shoot the bottom of that horseshoe. Well, if deer can't easily cross through the middle of that horseshoe, they got to come around it. Well, then you're putting them in the bull range and in different ways to do that would be like you're having uh, not necessarily late season, but you could have apple trees at the bottom of that. You, you could have uh, corn standing in the middle of that to obstruct the view, if nothing else, so that they want to come around. And then I find too, just, they enjoy they or they are more likely to travel on something that is of lower height you might hear some guys cutting a trail right through their food plots and this I've done this before too just taking a walk behind more and blazing a trail from where they often enter the plot to come right by your stand and they'll use it they they enjoy walking on either dirt or something that's lower than you know trudging through for them chest deep uh, brassicas for example. Just want to take a quick minute to
0: let you know that the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point-of-view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that is a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with a sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions, you know just how frustrating it can be to try to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of mounts and adapters. This fall, I'm gonna be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, tacticam.com and share your hunt with tacticam before we jump into too much of what you know folks can be doing this time of year and last time we talked it was mm-hmm. october we were talking about kind of an october checklist i want to get to some more of that december january time frame think you know get folks mm-hmm. thinking ahead a little bit but uh there's been some interesting developments with whitetail partners uh why don't you go yeah. into just a little bit of that and how you're building out a team
1: well, thanks for the opportunity to do that, Josh. And uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, it's been a couple of years now in the making and that we have been talking about this opportunity we see across the country. One of the, the things that's difficult for a, a one-man operation or for one location is to serve clients at greater distance. You know, it's, uh, it's costly for travel and, uh, you know, to have the logistics of that work out all the time is, is not necessarily something that we can do um and also i mean the diversity of our country and the whitetail habitat and is throw into that culture and hunting seasons and local knowledge and all this it's very difficult for one person to be aware of all those things and put it all together and seeing this opportunity and having a network of you know, just knowledgeable people that i've gotten to know throughout the years uh, in this industry uh, we teamed up and uh, currently have a team of uh, five people, including myself, that are serving uh, a much wider range uh, for clients across the country. So uh, we have uh, Jake in Michigan, Greg in Ohio, uh, Lee in Tennessee, and Josh yourself in Georgia. And with that group and the experience that they all bring in their their regions, which you've all been in for quite some time, at least your experience in that type of habitat uh, is fantastic. And this is, uh, we've got to kind of got the uh, the snowball rolling here now, and, and hopefully it'll start to pick up as we go. Um, really excited with the response we've had from clients, from our followers, from just everyone in general. It's been an exciting run. Um, and the, the other thing that I should mention here too is, you know, I've been do- at this now, uh, for four years, uh, uh pretty heavily. And, and I think that, um, one of the things that I saw with this too is, and, and I've been on the podcast before talking about is how we, or how I have brought the highest quality plans and reports that we can produce. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to have excellent deliverables for people and get plans that weren't just a sketch, you know, plans that gave every detail uh, as to how to set up a property. Um, And in doing this too, I wanted to bring that level of quality to everybody. So we've been, you know, going through a lot of processes and, you know, getting our house in order to uh, replicate that process for uh, the clients, wherever it is that we serve them.
0: Yeah. And that's something we've talked a lot about um, as this team has been forming is consistency in in what is provided, whether you're with Whitetail Partners Wisconsin or Whitetail Partners Ohio or Whitetail Partners Georgia, you're going to get the same level of service, the same deliverables, the same quality that you would get mm-hmm. from, you know, what people have come to know of Whitetail Partners. It was really interesting. I had a, a phone call the other day. Uh, a guy was pretty excited that there's a Whitetail Partners now in their in, in his area. And he was like, Hey, just want to see, do you come this far? And this guy works with Whitetail Properties, uh, real estate. Mm -hmm. And he, he would like to build out where he can, you know, refer clients with a new farm. Hey, give this guy a call and, um, you know, know that they're going to be taken care of. So he was real excited. He said, because I don't know of any other, um, Habitat consultant in the, in the game right now, who's providing the level of detail that whitetail partners is so that's one of the things that I was most drawn to uh, and I think am most excited about is knowing that that's one of the things that sets whitetail partners aside from the competition so if people are thinking hey why should I use whitetail partners instead of you know this buddy that I know who's kind of done this a couple of times it's like well one of the things is that report that you get at the end that's going to give you step by step of what you need to do with your property.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I, the, the report is intended to be a how to manual as much as a here's your plan. Um, and, w- you know, we, we want to stay in our lane of, of consulting and of providing advice and uh, helping take on the uh, mindset of that owner. You know, every plan we create is going to be something that's tailored to that owner, how they hunt, what their goals are. Because, and I've said this time and time again, given any one piece of property, the plan will look very different if from owner A to owner B, and I think it's important to know that you know the customization there for that client is really important. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, you know, Sam, another thing that people probably don't know about you is you've recently added uh, something to your resume in the in the realm of trophy photo taker.
1: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, hey. Now that's a fun story <laughs> right there. That's a fun story. Yep, I had the pleasure of uh, of getting a text from uh, from you, um, and and knowing where you were at, just miles from my house. I, I it was uh, I, I I forget. I think it was a, a bloody arrow is what I first saw. So I knew that I knew that there was something good coming. But uh, long story short, yeah, Josh, you arrowed a, a after. I don't know, nine or 10 days of, of some hot, hard hunting. Um, you air out a fantastic whitetail. Um, and for those who haven't seen pictures on social, it's a heavy horn, 140 inch, uh, just beauty from uh, Southern Wisconsin. But yes, so I, I (laughs) knowing that and I'm passionate about uh, uh, photography. Well, I'm a novice in it, but I I love taking good uh, pictures for people and, uh, that was the first thing I asked is if I could help, help take your pictures. And that was, that was awesome.
0: Yeah. The first thing I said was yes, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yes, yes, please, please come do this. So if, guys, if you've been following on Instagram and you've seen the photos, uh, those are all, uh, courtesy of Sam Billhorn. So, uh, well done, sir. Well, He'll, thank you. I appreciate that you was, being there a, to help me capture that moment and celebrate. You know, that that that's one of the weird parts of being on an out of state hunt is you get done and it's like, who do I I'm high done. five? Like, you know, who, yeah. who's who's around me to high five me. It's like I made this trip by myself. I don't know. Uh Yeah, so those was,
1: tail those tailgate moments are different then for sure. They
0: are. They are. So I appreciate you coming out to do that. But so oh, Sam
1: That was that was a great day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um Yeah, that that buck and that story is such a cool example uh even though I was hunting some public seeing exactly what manipulated the deer movement and what had changed and, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the simple piece of a ditch flattening out and a tree falling during the off season that I didn't know had fallen changed the way the deer used that whole area by sure. probably 75 to hundred yards. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, finally figuring that out, I was able to capitalize on that, but it really just brought to mind like, wow, we can really, you know, when you're setting up a plan for someone. You can replicate nature and what nature is already doing out there to right guide the deer through the property. Which for me was just such a cool, uh, a cool realization that you know a lot of what we're trying to do is replicate what we see happening out there already. What dictates deer right. movement? Okay, well here's what we see dictating deer movement. So we want to do a man-made version of that in a couple of key spots mm-hmm. and uh, put you in the right position. Except you know, as a, as opposed to, you know, out on public land, you're just kind of at the mercy of what has happened on your property. You can kind of say, Hey, this spot works out really well for me. So I can kind of encourage the deer movement right where I want it.
1: Yeah. Right on. And you saying that tree, I think all, for those of us who are passionate about um, habitat improvement and all this, we could, we could all reference that one tree. I mean, for me, it was on. I, uh, uh, I can take you to it. It's a hundred-year-old oak tree that uh, came crashing down. This is maybe ten years ago, and and seeing how that changed deer movement throughout the property was was my aha moment too. Mm. To see it, it just how that uh, can manipulate, you know, how that in nature happens, and now we want to replicate that. Uh, that's what so much of these habitat plans are about: is is going in there and defining things, defining setting, defining travel, uh, just to name a few and how that happens. Well, and I would say th- also a third mock scrapes, you know, where yeah. we want to define where that happens, you know, so many of the, uh, all of my hunting setups, I'll say, except for ones on food as much, um, if they're on a travel route and I have a deer coming in on that corridor, I'm not even thinking about shooting them until they're on that mock scrape because I know they're going for it. You know, and that's that, that's that opportunity that I'm going to wait for.
0: Yeah, very cool, very cool. And, you know, maybe mock scrapes are something that we could probably devote an entire an entire episode to at some point. And, and, and I say that because I've tried mock scrapes in the past, mixed success, right? Like you have one that just takes off, you have another one that doesn't, what in the world is going on there? But then when I had the opportunity to spend some time with you, to go out in the field, to see how you set your mock scrapes up and how all of that works... And to see, like, oh, the deer can't help themselves at that point. Like, it is all the way from fawns up to the most mature buck on your property. They can't walk by that thing, basically, without the 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 vine hitting them in the face. I mean they're they're gonna they're right. going to come in contact with it.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a typical corridor setup, and you've built them, you've seen them. Is uh, you had to take a strong movement that you already have. And you're going to you know, make sure that's the only movement. Sometimes there might be a secondary movement or even, even several uh, that, that goes throughout the, the landscape. And you're gonna put trees down on those uh, conflicting uh, corridors so that you basically block the deer from using it and you're telling them, you are going to use this one. And then that mock scrape is in your middle of your shooting lane at 25 yards and it is on the perfect flat piece of ground that, and, and you arrange it in such a way that, yeah, it's, it's right there. They have to walk around it um, and they won't. They will at least give you a second at that location.
0: Yeah. And you're, I, I just want to emphasize this point. I hear a lot of people talk about mock scrapes with mixed results. Your success rate on those kinds of mock scrapes on your travel routes is extremely
1: high. Oh, yeah, 90% for sure. I mean, 9 out of 10 deer, like I said, it, it they'd have to step around it, um, and they don't. They, they're all going to at least nose it, um, and some will spend three to five minutes there.
0: Yeah, I think that's huge. That's huge. Well, Sam, let let's mm-hmm. pivot now. You know, we're in December. We're recording this on December yeah. 7th. We're starting to think about, Uh, next year I think it's a really good time for guys to sit back and reflect I think you had this in your uh, whitetail checklist for December right Um, Mm -hmm. sit back and reflect on your hunting this year where it met your expectations where it didn't where you think things could and should be better I'm curious what are some of those telltale signs for people that hey I need to uh, make some improvements, tweak some improvements, give Sam a call to get his perspective on my property because I didn't see what I wanted to see. And what I, what I hope doesn't happen uh, is people who say, well, I got a buck this fall, therefore everything on my property is fine because that's not necessarily the case. It's, it's easy to think, well, I got lucky, so therefore I'm just going to hunt next year exactly like I did this year and bank on that to happen again. Um, that's not necessarily the case. So what are some of the things that you're thinking about that make you wonder, do I need to tweak some improvements? Do I need to change some things that, you know, what, what is, what was dissatisfying for me in my hunting?
1: Well, that's a great setup. Good question. Good points too. And I, I particularly picked up on the one of, uh, I'll say having a short memory, whether you were successful or not, um, that doesn't necessarily play into next year. Now you can confirm or deny how that happened and, you know, work to, uh, replicate that next year. But I would say it's, it's starting from, and I I will reference it again, looking at your property here now immediately following the season and seeing how it is functioning. Um, you know, some of those, a couple more telltale signs before we go into that, like, you know, the risk of butchering the statement, I'll I'll try and make it, is uh, if you've done what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got, you know, something along those lines of, you know, did you hunt the same three stands repeatedly this year? Well, were you successful? And maybe you were, and that was because it is a perennially good spot, or maybe you weren't, and you need to rethink that that's no longer my go-to spot. Um, So that could be hunting setup. Um, you know, are you are you utilizing all of your property, or is there you know the forty or eighty acres that you just haven't been touching because you aren't sure how to hunt it, or whatever that case might be? Um, a lot of the recommendations I'm going to make in a plan revolve around hunting the travel of bucks and uh, how they move across the landscape. So that's that's one of the key things I'm always looking for. Is and and one of the things I like to do is take, look at the travel routes across my landscape, even, and I make the recommendation to, to people, turn on the tracking on your uh, Onyx or whatever you, you use and, and go walk all of those trails, lay them down, see what's going on. And, and maybe you're not doing it for absolutely every single track you can find, but the ones that have been repetitive, I think will help show you uh, what's going on in your property. And then ask the question, well, maybe is there a way to consolidate these by doing some tim- uh, timber manipulation or whatnot? And looking at them and saying, what are the best setups that I could do? Or is there a setup I'm missing? Cause sometimes, especially for those who've had a property for some time, you do get in a habit of doing certain things. And all of a sudden you know, whether it's yourself realizing it or somebody else, uh, there is one of the best hunting locations you had, you were, you'd never hung a stand there and it just became your habit of doing certain things. Um, another one is access. How are you getting to your property? One of the, one of the things that, um, is easy to do is we were talking about this, uh, uh before the podcast was walking our, our blogging roads, our, our various maintenance roads. Um, good exercise to do is say, where did I set foot on my property during hunting season? And just take the, you know, maybe you have a log of your hunts or maybe just go from memory. Okay. When I went to the stand, just draw a line on your property where you went, and go through this exercise. And all of a sudden if you realize that you've crisscrossed your property 14 times throughout the season, uh, well you've maybe, you maybe you may be your biggest problem in how you're accessing stands another indicator if you're looking at trail cams and that sort of thing is did you acquire more bucks throughout the season or did you acquire or did you lose them did you did, did your numbers go down your deer numbers too you know one of the, and this is something that on the very high on my list is I think my doe number slipped a little bit and it wasn't because we've been harvesting Those, uh, though we have been, because we know where our deer numbers are. But I think our bedding needs a tune-up. You know, I think some of our bedding areas aren't being utilized as much as they have been in the past, and that's going to be a high priority for us. So, what you know, what is what's the thing going on, and and then starting to search for the cause.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Onyx Hunt app. Onyx gives you up-to-date landowner information color-coded public and private land boundaries, and gives you a ton of tools to help you hunt smarter. One tool I'm loving right now is their Optimal Wind feature, which lets you set the optimal wind for a given location, then tells you in real time whether the wind is good, bad, or just okay for that spot. You can try it risk-free for seven days right now. Just download the Onyx Hunt app on your preferred app store today. As we begin to shift our minds to December, January, um, you know, a lot of folks are shifting gears. They're thinking, I'm going to be uh, getting out on some hard water and doing some ice fishing and, um, you know, or, or whatever the case may be, maybe getting out pheasant hunting and that kind of stuff. But for those who are thinking, all right, let's get a jump start on some of this habitat work, what can we be working on right now, even with colder temps and maybe even with a little snow on the ground?
1: Well, as I mentioned, with going through that walk and dissecting the property. I mean the observations, the information is the most critical thing now because it's just following the hunting season. So I know this is probably the third time I've said that, but what I would say a couple of ways to do, to, to do even a better job of that is to have a few different colors, of ribbon, a marking tape in your, in your yeah. pocket when you're going out and okay, this is something I want to block or this is something I want to open up and giving yourself those markers for later, Will be really helpful because then you can go back and say, "Okay, I want to make this into a better corridor, or, or perhaps this bedding area, whatever those things are." Is to have those those ribbons out there in the field when you go uh, to do that work. So that's that's definitely one to make those to, to make better on that observation. Obviously, taking notes is another good one. That's uh, it, it becomes difficult in the field sometimes to do that, uh, but taking the time to write things down will organize your efforts later. As far as the habitat work itself, um, you can get after things with a chainsaw right away. Um, getting any sort of cuts done, your bedding areas, your corridors. Um, I always tell people it's, it's great if you can move quickly seeing the sign and get that cutting done before you have heavy snow, especially here, you know, talking in the North. Uh, it, Uh, it becomes very difficult once there's a good amount of snow on the ground to, to get a, to move around, to be safe, um, and, and do all that. And the other thing with tree cutting at any time of the season here is to be sure that it it isn't too cold. Um, I don't want to be doing hinge cutting, uh, if the daytime temperatures aren't getting into the higher thirties or forties, because if you have frozen trees, they're going to be more brittle. You're going to have, Uh, more loss in your cutting. And and if you're in particular doing hinge cutting, uh, that is uh, counterproductive to what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So this time of year, then are you employing, so obviously you're going to be doing some hinge cutting and that kind of thing. Are you employing other methods of of TSI? Are you girdling anything? Are you just felling trees totally? Or are you going to save that work for more in the spring?
1: Yeah. So you can do all of those things. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, much on girdling. I don't like seeing the, the dead standing trees. I'll just fell and put them on the ground. I'm pretty comfortable with that. But, um, other things that you can be doing, um, in December uh, is looking around and seeing what you want to add in spring. You know, every year we're putting four or 500, uh, trees onto our property and, uh, bare root plantings the conifers mostly, but, uh, hardwoods and, uh, um, soft mass and some other, other trees as well. But, uh, looking and making your list and getting that order in a lot of these places, these nurseries that handle bare root trees, uh, that there's some of the more popular species that will, even in December and January, they'll close those out. They're sold out because they only get so much stock or they have only committed to so much. And then you won't get those in. So it's, this is definitely one of the things you got to plan ahead further on is your, your bare root tree orders to get those done. Uh, Mine's already in, for example, here in early December uh, for spring, but to get after those for sure. And it's, it's never uh, too early to look at other orders too. You know, your food plots, maybe you want to lay those out a little bit and think about the architecture of how you might want to change that. Maybe it's bringing in a new crop that you haven't had or, developing screening where you haven't had that before. And some of those things uh, that you certainly could get after that uh, in those open field setups.
0: Yeah. So uh, on that, on that line of getting your tree orders in and maybe doing some cutting, kind of setting up bedding areas. First of all, it's a really good time of year to do some cutting as well because you get those tops coming down uh, later, you know, in this winter timeframe, that's putting some food on the ground really, really quickly Mm -hmm. and really effectively maybe you've got nothing but harvested crop fields all around you, this could prove pretty mm-hmm. beneficial to the deer and at least get them in those pockets relatively quickly and get them acclimated to those areas. As we're thinking yeah. about bedding sites, though, you mentioned yours might need a little bit of a tune-up this year. And we're making tree orders. Mm-hmm. We're thinking through how we're going to set this bedding area up. What are some maybe, like, bedding area do's and don'ts? Because uh, I think this is a really good time to focus there because if you can focus there now – give them spring, summer, fall, where we're just staying out of it, leaving it alone. It's only going to help you, right? So what are some do's and don'ts when it comes to trying to set up a bedding area? Maybe some mistakes you've seen made or, or some, you know, Hey, that we made this really thick spot and nothing's in it. What, what's happening?
1: So some basics for starters. Uh, and when we talk about bedding areas, typically we want to be creating uh, good cover, good side cover, both, uh, visually, uh, just so that they feel safe in there, they can hide and that sort of thing. Um, you can, I'll always say this just with a smile is you can never undercut a bedding area. You know, you, most of the time that's the problem I see is people just drop a few trees, they hinge half a dozen trees here or there, and you look up and there's no light getting in those hinge cuts are likely going to die and they weren't enough cover to begin with. Uh, in general, you need to open up that canopy, something to the effect of at least 50% or more of those big canopy trees coming down. Uh, and and that's going to give you your major structure for your bedding area. So these are the trees that are going to, they're going to hang up. These aren't hinge cuts. These are, these are trees that are felt. And those branches will hang up high. They're good for your subsequent cuts to hinge down upon and when you're done, you're going to have a very, uh, cluttered, uh, thick mess, to be honest, uh, that you can look up and have a lot of sunlight coming down. And I think another common mistake there too is only working within that pocket. Maybe you're working on a quarter acre or a third acre pocket, but you didn't cut any trees beyond that. Sometimes you need to cut a couple of canopy trees a little wider because that sunlight doesn't come down through a tube. You know, it needs a little bit more of an opening that way. Um, Another mistake is once you're, once you're to that point is being, you know, quitting, being done, say we did it. Um, If you leave it in a tangled mess that you can't uh, go through and think of, think of kids perhaps, you know, climbing around in and around and through the trees. If it's, if it's just a brush pile that's impenetrable, um, the deer aren't going to go into it either. So you want to have that area be, uh, cleared out. And what I mean by that is just, you want to, you want to make several routes through it in, around entrance, exit, kind of just a maze throughout that whole area. I would say on a quarter acre bedding area, you might have a couple hundred yards of trails within it that wind through and clear out, you know, and, and then obviously the beds themselves getting into the details of Actually, clearing a spot, raking it out down to dirt. You can put a backlog in there. Some of those, some of those details. Um, when you're when you're doing this work, a lot of that cleanup and detail work you can't physically do as e- easily in the in the winter with the frozen ground. That's a perfect perfect activity to do in the spring when you can come back and kind of see how it's being used and even even check it in the summer to make sure that another tree hasn't fallen down and blocked an entrance or something like that.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that that may be something that a lot of guys overlook is that uh, having the ability for deer to travel in and through the bedding area effectively. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I've seen before attempts at cutting where you may have some deer using it, but you're really limited on the number of deer that can use it because really they can only bed on the outside. They're not going to walk mm-hmm. through a brush pile or jump, you know, jump into a brush pile uh, to, to get into this bedding. And then also some of the best bedding that I have found that's just naturally occurring is when you've got a thicker pocket. But think about when you walk through it, some of the marshy areas that I that I really like to hunt. You know, you've got red dogwood and all that stuff down in it. Yeah, it's really thick. Yes, it's really gnarly. But there are sufficient areas for you to walk through as a per, like you as a person can fit through there. It's mm-hmm. you're not just pushing right. through the brush continuously. And those are the sites that hold seem to hold the highest number of deer. Is where you can have this larger area with sort of almost like honeycomb pockets of of denser cover, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, But and that's just based on observation of what I've seen, uh, not necessarily what I've created. But um, have have you seen the same thing?
1: Yeah, I I think you you hit that well. And back to the comment before of replicating nature, um, you, you know, deer do want to have some separation within those areas too. So like you described, having that, you know, those honeycomb is a great example, especially just for people to picture in their mind. Uh, a simple example I'll give is if you have a, um, brushy, uh, kind of a old, old field habitat where you have little pockets here and there of where deer are going to bed, you know, throughout it. But there's one main trail that runs through that whole area you know, a deer can veer off the side, maybe they're bedding underneath a honeysuckle bush or something like that. And you can replicate that. I do it with a mower is go into an old field. And I say, here's the main trail through this field. And then I'll spin off of that with the mower and mow just a, you know, a 10 foot radius little pocket down to dirt and, you know, get back on my trail and walk out. So, you know, you can, you can replicate this, uh, in any type of setup. You you talk about a lowland setup, mine's maybe an upland brushy field, and we talked about timber before, all very similar in that you uh, want numerous bedding areas throughout and also then uh, options for travel uh, coming in and out of that.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious now, uh, we've probably got some guys listening who have done some, some habitat work on their property. They've tried to maximize, uh, they've tried to put in some features that are going to hold the deer with bedding, that are going to influence movement, and maybe they're, they're not satisfied with their results. Like maybe they've done it themselves and they're kind of like, ah, where did I, where did I go wrong, uh, if that makes sense. So what are some of those key things that you've noticed? Maybe it's with travel corridors. Maybe it's with your food plot setup uh, where guys have you know, put in the work, well-informed, but it just they didn't see the results that they were hoping to see.
1: I think one of the most common things that come to mind in this subject is always, um, that the improvements relate that they work together. And it's possible that a guy can say, okay, bedding, I need bedding. Well, I'm going to put that on this. I hear south facing slopes are good. I'm going to put it on the south facing slope and all right, we've got an improved area and they're going to bed there. Well, his main access into the hunting land is right there. And he walks by it um, every time he goes out to his setups, you know, that that probably wasn't a good choice from the standpoint of how he had to access the land. And maybe he has a different means of accessing it, but I mean, obviously that's where our recommendations come in is to look at something and say, it isn't about understanding just a, what a feature is and how to do it the wear part of it is equally important. If you're, um, you you could have some of the best looking habitat and be very desirable for whitetails, but only if you never hunt it because it's unhuntable, your access to your stand or your stand itself. um, You have one opportunity to do that. And that's the first and only time you hunt it because after that, it's just screwed up. And I think that that's, that's the, that's by far the most common thing whenever I see improvements is that it was, um, perhaps in the wrong location. Another thing that I think of too, as it relates to these things is, um, the, the order in which things are in, you know, we have, when we want to develop travel, it, uh, it's often, we talk about generically bedding to food, food to bedding, but where we put improvements, uh, within that, in, in the order that we have it is very intentional too. I think a simple example we talk about every now and then are water holes. A water hole is a highly attractive uh, element to a property. I don't like seeing them in the open sunshine of a food plot. Uh, for, for me, well, one, just the functionality of keep them, keeping them in the shade so that they're uh, more likely to be filled and all that. Um, and also secluded and, and these different some other aspects that come into how deer use them and also not wasting that improvement on a food plot. For example, you know, the deer are already coming there for the high water content food that's there. And that's why they're there. They don't also then need a water hole. It's better off placing that, you know, 80 yards back into the cover where you have a hunting opportunity to catch that buck more in a staging uh, area that, He's coming into that plot. So, anyway, a couple examples of the, the where those placements are uh, tied to it. In particular, hunting access is probably number one.
0: Yeah, I I really like that, and that was actually where I was hoping you would go: is how these uh, how these features function together. Because as I've as I've talked with guys about you know habitat improvements, they've done a lot of of good work, and maybe even their execution of that specific thing was really good, but it just doesn't quite relate well to either their access or the food mm-hmm. or the travel or the yep. bedding. It's just, it's just a few little tweaks, you know, and the, the difference between something being really well used and your improvement, not being well used can be so minute, you know, it can be, it can mm-hmm. just be a little, a little off and uh, maybe you can tweak it and, and begin to improve it this year. How quick are you seeing bad access mess up a property. Let's say an average property, 40 to 80 acres at a guy's hunting. How quickly are you seeing poor access uh, mess that property up? Because I grew up and and one of the ways that that we that we hunted a lot was we hunted a lot of food plots, especially in the afternoons. And the food plots were were well used, to fill up with does, all that good stuff. But gosh, I think most of the plots, you had to walk through at least a part of the plot to get to the stand to get into the the blind or wherever it was because it was just, that was the simple way to do it, right? You drive your tractor in, you plant the plot, you pull your tractor out, and then you got to stand off to the side because you don't want it on the road because you got to get your tractor through there. So you end up having to walk through the plot every single time you access that, which means deer are going to smell you every single time. So how quick do you see that having an impact?
1: Well, in the example you gave of a small property, that impact is, it's the first hunt and it's it's sustained throughout the season as long as you use it. I'd say only someone that can get away with this is somebody that has several hundred acres and dozens of setups that they can go in there and wreck one because the next night they can go across the road to the other part of the farm and, uh, have a, a, as good of an opportunity over there because they haven't wrecked it. And meanwhile, the first spot is cooling off, so to speak. Um, now we'd never want to have any of that in a setup that we're going to create. And that's why, you know, when I say hunter access is number one, sometimes, you know, you look at a property for somebody and you're going to look at, say, you have identified three of the top five hunting locations here. And good job. You clearly see how the deer are moving across the landscape, you know, patterns, you know, when to hunt those stands. That is, that's another thing we haven't talked much about is you know, trying, giving instruction on when to go to a certain set, Um, even if they're doing all those things, but we'll correct their access. We'll say, Hey, rather from coming in from the right, you're going to come in from the left from now on. And in during these hours and these days and and all that, and give them something new and that they're no longer having their, uh, their use of that land during the hunting season, uh, wreck their hunt before it starts. Yeah, I mean, that's really, really
0: good. So, all right, Sam, we're we're getting into December, January. It's about that time where guys are thinking about what to do. They should probably be giving you a call to get on your schedule if that's something that interests them, if that's something they think they could benefit from. Where would you point folks to either get a hold of you? And, and uh, you know, if I've just got some questions and maybe I'm not ready to commit yet, but I, I want to talk mm-hmm. with you first, is that okay? Like, mm-hmm. is it all right to just reach out?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the social media website, you can learn about what I have out there as far as that goes, uh, at Whitetail Partners on Facebook, Instagram, and whitetailpartners.com is the website. Uh, looking forward to an overhaul on that website here shortly, but lots of great information out there. But to your question of, hey, what what can you do, or I don't, I don't know what I need even, where, where do we even start with this? Um, my phone number is on all those locations or if somebody wants to write it down now at 608-572-7035, call me. I'd be happy to have a conversation about what you have going on, what type of thing could be the, the right service for you, for your needs. Um, we have basic services that are as simple as a couple hour Q and A session where we sit down and go through your property on, on a, a shared zoom meeting uh, or the, you know, ex- as expensive as multi-day visits to properties to dissect them, come up with a full, full scale plan and, and give every detail, like we've talked about uh, in, in this podcast and anything in between that, you know, sometimes we'll work on even a virtual uh, design where we give some of the basics of how to go about setting up a property and that's more of a middle uh, price point on that. But yeah, to that end, uh, go online or give me a call and I'm happy to to help you out. Awesome. Well,
0: Sam, thanks for your time today. Appreciate you coming back on. Look forward to uh, talking again.
1: Yeah, Josh, uh, thank you for your time very much.
0: That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you could leave us a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. While you're at it, you can follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me, suggest topics that you want to hear, guests you want to hear from, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx.